You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I've got my best friends with me, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. That was an interesting voice, Alan. I, I like don't know that. what the fuck I'm the doing. The intro right voice. Now. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Rob Levy. So. <laughs> and Anthony A. Dubs Williams. Howdy. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah, also exactly. Known- I'm ready to sell used cars at any minute now. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. Okay. So this week we are going to be talking about, we're going to delve into the the nether regions of our psyche. Hmm, and we're going to close. Yeah, really. And we are <laughs> going to be talking about our musical guilty pleasures. You are going to see sides of us that you've never seen before. You are going to hear stories that you will never have expected to hear. Exactly. Right. I don't, I'm being weird tonight. So anyway, um, before we do all that, whether it's guilty or not, let's see what everybody's been listening to this week. So Anthony, kick us off. All right, really just two songs. Otherwise, it's been a ton of stuff that I've had on rotation for a while. But new track from Barnes Courtney, Supernatural, is great. Mm. Go check it out. He's really fun. I've been kind of turned on to him for a while. Um, So that new track, fantastic. And then additionally, uh, Nita Strauss, the track she did with Alyssa White Gloves from Arch Enemy called The Wolf You Feed, Mm. is fantastic and that video is just something else um there's nothing quite quite like seeing one incredibly beautiful woman absolutely shredding it on the guitar Mm -hmm. and the other one doing death growls it's uh it's quite the sight um and the track is slamming so definitely check it out yeah anthony sent that to me and i really really enjoyed it it was kicking yeah, and Alyssa does both growls and cleans on it, which yeah. I Wait, always is that the that. one you sent me too, Anthony? The that the, I, the I've sent you a track by Arch Enemy before, oh, but Arch not Enemy, this yeah. particular track. This track gotcha. you. So okay, yeah, I thought she yeah. was insane. She was awesome. Yeah, she's so talented. Totally. And, um, the type of apparently there are different types of uh, death growls, mm-hmm. and the type that she does is apparently the kind of the one it takes the most kind of talent to actually do. Yeah, she's got a I watched big a whole video on it. Hmm. Cool. Interesting. Who knew that there was like a whole range of, you know, yeah, a school it, of death growls? It, it's all to do with like how they're formed in the throat. And sure. certain ones um, kind of require better control of the vocal cords in the throat. And apparently yeah. that's what she does. That makes sense. Awesome. That's awesome. I mean, because that, that will ruin your voice in no time. So if oh, you yeah. don't do it properly, it's just like... You know, being classically trained to sing, you know, a wide range of stuff, it's the same kind of philosophy. Well, if, if to... you partic- particularly if you look at a lot of the kind of new metal with metalcore vocalists mm-hmm. that 
came to prominence in the 2000s at some point most of them ruined their vocal cords and had yeah. to have surgery and then train to actually do it properly yeah cory taylor is one of them from yeah. slipknot he that happened to him and jesse leach from kill switch engage same story mm. um absolutely ruined his vocal cords and right. surgery and then had to retrain and actually sat with a vocal coach to learn how to do it again wow so. And people who are vocal coaches who used to teach, you know, proper singing technique, never expected that they would have to train death growls. <laughs> Here's how to death growl. It's funny. I, you say that and I'm suddenly imagining uh, a version of the king's speech, but with death growls. <laughs> <laughs> the king's death growl. <laughs> I love it. A very 21st century monarch. <laughs> But yeah, uh, apparently there is actually one vocal coach in, in particular. I forget her name who does specialize in it. So, wow. um, yeah, that's cool. But yeah, the Wolfie feed, Knight Strauss featuring Alyssa White Gloves. Check it out. All right, Rob, lay it on us. So unknown to me, but utterly, uh, I, there's very few times I go to the record store and so I see something I'm like this came out of nowhere. I had no idea this was even out, but there's a new Brian Eno album oh. called Forever and Ever No More. And it's much better than I thought it was. It's um, everything you expect a Brian, Al a Brian Eno album to be. But lately he's done some kind of weird stuff with like members of Underworld. And, so and it's been kind of just, you have to be in a headspace for it. But this is a little more in the vein of some of his other records that um, did in the late 70s and early 80s. So if you love Brian Eno, check that out. And then um, four giant CDs or vinyls of John Hughes mu music. Uh, life moves pretty fast. The music yeah. of John Hughes. Yeah. It's friggin' incredible. The so it doesn't have very much from She's Having a Baby, but most of the stuff from the other John Hughes movies is on there. And like stuff like the mess around that he used in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and Otis Redding and uh, just all sorts of stuff. If you just want to bask in, um, you know, your 80s, nostalgia but hear music that's not necessarily always on the upper surface of 80s music check this out it's uh it's pretty thorough and it's pretty intense it's a great collection it's yeah it's it's like fantastic um there's a couple things that uh, i forgot were even on like that, that are on there like the dream academy uh instrumental oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. the dream academy cover of the smiths then there's you know Lick the Tins, and who are a band I, I always liked but kind of forgot about. Um, it's probably the only compilation to have not one but two songs from Flesh for Lulu on it. You know, cool. so, and the and the Rave Ups who were incredible. The Rave Ups were great and um, just never got their due. There's a lot of really cool stuff on there. So, E.G. Daily, you know, there's all kinds oh, of cool stuff. Oh, I love her. Um, <laughs> uh, Kirsty McCall. Her version of You Just Haven't Earned It Yet, Baby, which is terrific. That's on there. Lots of great stuff. So uh, I recommend mm -hmm. that as well. Cool. All right, Stephanie, have you listened to any music this week? No music, but <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> because, I, you know, I actually did this weekend. I was I was birding in the freezing cold weather, bird watching, hawk watching, in, it, in case anyone didn't know that I'm a hawk watcher. <laughs> but um, – so I sit out there for hours and I was, I've been listening as always to the Smartless podcast. I'm just, I'm pretty sure I've almost listened to now every single episode and there's like a couple, at least a couple hundred, I think. Um, 
and maybe a hundred, maybe 150 or something. And then I've also been getting into Sean Hayes's uh, hypochondriactor, which is just a, a hilarious podcast, which he's telling, you know, it's basically he has a guest and they talk about some ailment and it's like, really, <laughs> it's very interesting. And, um, entertaining at the same time. And I also forgot to to mention to you guys, I've been listening to my friend Susie's podcast called the Co the casual birder podcast. So okay. she's, she's just got a wonderful, cool, interesting and mellow show about birds. So that's what I've been listening to. <laughs> when are you going to start your birding podcast? I don't think I'm going to do a birding podcast. <laughs> I'll, I was on a lot of birding podcasts for my whole album. but <laughs> We could do a musical birding podcast and we could talk about Hawkwind and we could talk about... Oh my God, yes. <laughs> free Bird. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, let's not talk about Free Bird. That could be a guilty, that could be a guilty pleasure. <laughs> we'll be here for three hours if we talk about Free Bird. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so this week, I haven't been listening to much because I've been getting ready for a thing that I had to do last week. So I had to put together a big playlist of all kinds of shit. And I put a lot of thought into it and stuff. But so um, some of my listening this week has been to one of my favorite recent artists, uh, Sam Fender, has a new single out. Um, it is called Wild Gray Ocean, and it's really good. Um, there's another new artist that I just discovered this past week called Lissy, L-I-S-S-I-E. And I was listening to um, one of the stations on Sirius XM. I think it was, uh, I don't remember. Anyway, um, and they played this song and they're like, okay, here's a new song by Lissy. And I'm like, well, let's just see what it is. And it started out and I thought, well, this sounds kind of nice. I kind of like this. And then the voice started and I was like, holy fucking shit. This is Stevie Nicks from 1985. It sounded exactly like Stevie Nicks. And the more the song played, I thought this could actually be a Stevie Nicks alternate universe song. So I was like, okay, well, this is kind of nice. So I was like, her voice is so specific. I was like, let's just, I'm just going to look up some of her other stuff and discovered that she actually is aware that she sounds exactly like Stevie Nicks because she, and she kind of leans into it. She has done covers of dreams and go your own way. So she's fully aware that she sounds yeah. just like a, like a Fleetwood Mac song, you know, you sent me that and I was like, Oh yeah, that's yeah. like, she totally knows. And she, <laughs> you're yeah. right. She leans into it. But the other thing that I've been really kind of listening to is the since the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was like a week or two ago. Um, and I didn't get to go, of course. I, I really wanted to go this year because this was a great group of people going in. Um, so I've been really listening to a lot of those artists in prep for last night. They released the they they put it out on HBO Max, the an, an edited version. It's like uh, four and a half hours long. The full show was like five and a half to six hours. So it's edited a bit for, you know, brevity, <laughs> brevity. Um, but, so I watched the entire thing today and oh my God, it was so good. I'm just gonna, okay. But even though some of these, I mean, all of these artists sounded great, you know, they really performed incredibly well, but at least three of them, well, counting Dolly, four of them, uh, Rob Halford, Pat Benatar, and Annie Lennox are, are like right around the 70 mark, you know? And even though they sound great, you can hear the age in their voice, you know? You, you're eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at 25 years. 
If they would just put people in around the 25-year mark, then everybody would sound amazing right. and be on top of their game and, you know, be more in their prime. And uh, anyway, but yeah. when you wait until they've been around for 40 or 50 years and they're 70 years old, you know, I mean, and the performances were really, really good, but they're really good for 70-year-olds, you know? <laughs> I mean, not that that's a bad thing. I mean, you know, hopefully when I'm 70... I will still be rocking and rolling. Exactly. I doubt it. My back ain't going to hold up that long. <laughs> Being a drummer, that's an actual concern. <laughs> 10 True. more years, Alan, you can do it. Oh, I don't know, man. All right, so let's talk about some of our musical guilty pleasures. First of all, let's talk about what you consider, wh what's your definition of guilty pleasure? Like for me, it's like something that I kind of enjoy, but I don't know that I would just tell anybody that I kind of enjoy yeah. it, you know? Yeah, so, yeah like <laughs> so it's you any, like you kind of know that it's not the greatest song or that, a great, you know, they're not the hippest band, maybe, or whatever. I mean, to right. some people they are, but, you know, you still like to listen to it. <laughs> it's it's not just that, though, because I, I think there are several different categories, right? So you've got the, what you just said, Steph. This band is distinctly not cool, but I still can't help but kind of like him. Mm -hmm. Then there's the stuff of problematic artists, right? Mm. So yeah. you shouldn't oh, like this yeah. person because as a person, they've done some terrible stuff, but there might be a song or an album or even an entire back catalog that you kind of secretly like, even though you know this person was garbage. Right. Mm. I definitely have an entire album by someone in that category on my list. Excellent. So. Excellent. And maybe stuff that you don't tell people about because you don't want to have to go into the long backstory of explaining what it is. Right. <laughs> but also there's some stuff that's just so bizarrely weird for the sake, for the sake of kitsch that you also uh, don't want the public humiliation. <laughs> right. Okay. Who wants to kick us off? I'll kick us off, but with it's going to be some stuff from like when I was, you know, a real young kid. Mm -hmm. And that I still wouldn't, that I actually, you know, it's funny. One of them I listened to really recently. This is, I love it. I don't care. And it's Sean Cassidy's cover of the do run run. Okay. I'm <laughs> oh sorry. I'm just going to start the whole show up with, I am sorry. <laughs> you know, my brother used to play the Holy Daylights out of that record. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, so did I. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I don't know whatever happened to the actual vinyl. I think it got lost in my stepmother's house somewhere and got, you know, damaged in a flood or something. And I wish I still had it, but um, I stared at that album cover for many hours listening over and over to that song. So that's a huge guilty pleasure. Now in the same kind of vein, I was also a huge Bay City Rollers fan. You know, I was like into mm. the Tiger Beat and Teen Beat, you know, all those magazines when I was really right. little. So I loved, you know, the Bay City Rollers. So Saturday night, I mean, come on. It's a great song. It's really totally kitschy, but that's another one in that whole teen idol kind of vein. And I think the third one, which you all know <laughs> that I'm obsessed with is the Osmonds. But not just the Osmonds. I mean, I love also Donnie and Marie. I, I could watch their TV show re reruns, you know, over and over because 
I know it's crazy. And I know they're, I know it's so goofy and silly, but their voices are so perfect and they sound so good together. Mm-hmm. Um, also was a huge fan of Marie when I was lo- younger, just her solo stuff. So there, there's a song she did called, this is the way that I feel that I love. Uh, obviously paper roses too. Yeah. Cam still, still can't believe she was 13 when she did that. And I just love that. So, so cheesy, but just so, <laughs> so great. So those are three to start us off. And I'm, you know, I'm guilty. <laughs> I, I think you hit on something interesting though there, Steph, in the, the Osmonds seem to be one of those groups where it was distinctly uncool to like the Osmonds for a really long time, but there now almost seems to be a little bit of revisionism about it and people mm. are suddenly embracing them again. Oh. And one of the bands on my list, I mean, when I was growing up and in the 90s and the 2000s, liking the Bee Gees was mm. not cool. Mm. And, you know, since two of the three have now passed, again, and and there have been a couple of documentaries, you've had that kind of revisionism. And suddenly people are like, oh, wait, these guys are actually really good. Oh, yeah. And Mm -hmm. I I find that interesting because I was so used to as a kid kind of hiding the fact that I really like the Bee Gees, particularly amongst my peers. And I, I, again, I just feel like that's, the kind of thing we're seeing with the Osmonds as well. They're, mm-hmm. they're almost kind of getting that reevaluation, and I don't think they need to be a guilty pleasure anymore. They're just a pleasure. Yeah. Right. Do, do, for the Bee Gees, for, I'm curious. Except for long-haired lover from Liverpool. <laughs> Jimmy, <laughs> sorry, crash. Jimmy Osmond. That's, <laughs> that's out no matter what. Um, I, Anthony, though, I'm curious to – so did you – do you, were you in? Are you into the Bee Gees like in their sort of um, Saturday Night Fever kind of thing, or before like the pre? Because I yeah. think the before is amazing. Yes. Like they're just right. amazing. I think it's all fantastic. Yeah. To be honest, okay, the, so the before I. stuff is is great. Their sixties material is amazing. Everything like Massachusetts and yeah. I mean, I've just got to get a message to you. Is probably my favorite Bee Gees song. Mm-hmm. I like their their disco era stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I think as songwriters, they're just they were and in in the case of the surviving ones still are mm-hmm. incredibly talented and then you listen to the end of their career with their this is where i came in album mm. and even then that's a really interesting kind of odyssey through their different styles and they yeah. kind of revisit that 60s style with the title track on that mm-hmm. just all of it i think great great songwriters i, I think cool. the least cool part of it to like was definitely the disco material and things Saturday night fever distinctly uncool <laughs> I, I always loved it you know i don't care i think exactly. too i think too the thing that really helped them is when those early albums got reissued and became way more available to like a broader scope of the public um and a lot more critics get their hands on them so a lot of the critics that slagged them off in the 70s for being a disco band finally got to hear these records that they made you know, decades before and realized that this is not just a band that really know how to craft a melody, but they also know how to take the mood of a particular time and put it into song with hooks. And mm-hmm. they, they are very much a band that knows about timing and place for when mm-hmm. their records are. And I think that's one of the things that's really kind of happened, happened with them. But to me, nothing quite sums up how distinctly uncool they were than the moment in the um, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart documentary where Noel Gallagher's talking about them. Oh, and he says, oh, you yeah. know, I was, I was at a friend's house and 
this band, you know, this record was on. And I asked, who is this? And they said, the Bee Gees. And I went, the Bee Gees? Like, yeah. you know, th- there was a perception of it. Yeah. And I-, I find it so interesting how there are so many bands back then that have now come through a reevaluation. And I'm curious, 10, 20 years from today, what are we going to say on this show Mm-hmm. that will then no longer be a guilty pleasure. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Mm. That is true. So I, on that subject, I want to mention, um, not only is the performance real, I mean, and I'm talking about the disco stuff, not only is the performance really good, not only is the songwriting and the arrangement really good, those albums were incredibly well produced. And the Bee Gees were always active in the production of those things um whether they were producer or whether co-producer or whatever so i just wanted to say that they really really had a sense of the studio and how to make it work yeah absolutely those yeah. those those songs are impeccable yeah all right yeah. but this is not the Bee Gees cast so <laughs> We could start that. <laughs> we could. We could. And there's definitely enough there to talk about. There is another band I want to mention that I have mentioned on this podcast before and denied liking them that much. But I will admit <laughs> they are a guilty pleasure. Uh-oh. And in the mid 90s, they were one of the biggest bands, certainly in the UK, if not the world. And eventually they stopped being cool. And that is Oasis. Those first two albums they put out, very much a guilty pleasure of mine. They're phenomenal. Yes, they are. (laughs) I will pretend to most people, although I guess the the game is over because I'm announcing it on a podcast. The jig is up, Anthony. Yeah. (laughs) They're great. They're so amazing. Yeah. And those those two, those first two albums especially are like they're just perfect. Yeah. They're dumb rock. I mean, there's nothing particularly smart or intelligent about it. It's no, kind of lowest common denominator stuff, but that's actually that. what makes it really good. I think you All just right. want to hear records that make you feel good or forget about everything and not have to be deep and meaningful. And I think, yeah, right. right. You know, and I'm going to say, as in, in my history as a Kiss fan, being smart and intelligent and high minded is not necessarily something that makes good music. Yeah, right. Not always. Because Kiss is pretty dumb sometimes. <laughs> uh, Alan, to your point, Dream Theater. <laughs> no. Very, very smart music. Yes. Not that great to listen oh, to. Oh, we'll, we'll just have to part ways there. <laughs> I love them. They're a little too, look how smart we are. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, so all right, I guess I'll yeah, step what do you... up to the I'll step into the confession booth. Yeah. Like I'm this is music musical Catholicism. I'm going to go <laughs> into confession. Right. And um so I'm gonna this and this kind of goes back to uh some of Stephanie's uh era. And it's another well, okay. I, I've always been big on I like artists who write their own music and you know perform their own stuff and you know blah 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 and so for a very 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 long time i would not admit to being a monkeys fan oh yeah because they're a tv band right but they have that whole pinocchio story of like you know the little wooden boy wanted to become a real boy Mm -hmm. and they were all musicians and they were all had a performance 
history before coming onto the show and they were hired to play these characters on tv but they wanted to say we are playing these characters but we are a band and after the first two albums which were made basically before they were hired like all the music was done you know in prep for in the production for season one and they just had to walk in and you know provide vocals the next couple of albums they played produced mostly wrote themselves and um and i think that's some of the best shit they ever did oh yeah and um yeah they were no know, joke i mean they definitely yeah, were no joke you i know? mean when you're talking about peter tork <laughs> can play any instrument you put in front of him he's an excellent bass player yeah great keyboardist great guitar player michael nesmith is a killer songwriter great guitar player and he says he's no guitar player compared to peter tork and you know Nesmith is great, so you've got serious talent in that band, and um, you know the episodes were silly and fun, but they they turned out some great music. Whether that be written yeah. by other people that they selected and you know produced for their album, or they wrote it, and Michael Nesmith particularly wrote a hell of a lot mm -hmm. of music for the Monkees. Yes, and even on the albums where you know they're working on the television show and you know the album is being made they're still on it like uh, nesmith and and torque particularly add a lot of guitar parts and keyboard parts and all kinds of things rob i'm dying to know what your biggest guilty pleasure is i don't know if it's my biggest i've got several um that are kind of strange and weird but um i was asked maybe about 20 maybe maybe 18 about 18 years ago if I was interested in reviewing opera, because one of the magazines I looked for that I was writing for was going to do opera reviews and needed someone to do it. And I'd never been, I knew nothing mm. about it. So I went and luckily the opera theater here, they sing everything in English. Right. Um, so it, it is kind of cheating, but uh, I, so I went and I actually got completely hooked on it. So now, and I'm lucky that I've been doing this for about, 16 years now i review opera with a couple different theaters every year and uh, we get tickets and go and um i love the theater of it i love how big the you know the vocals are and sort of the the melodrama and the costumes and generally i love things like how watching the sets move but mostly it is really at times complex music and really clever orchestration with voices that have to be, you know, synced with that. And it's really fascinating uh, as an art form. So there you go. Yeah, I am. I am very fortunate back in my orchestra days that I got to do some opera and I was in uh, the, the biggest one that I did was seven performances of Marriage of Figaro, which was so much fun. And you would think that after weeks and weeks and weeks of rehearsal and then seven performances you would be like oh my god i can't stand to hear this shit anymore but i loved every second of it oh that's cool it was yeah i loved it i was the timpanist in the orchestra and man that was that was just an amazing experience that's so neat well speaking of the theater i'm going to bring us to a 180 degree like switch around and talk about <laughs> sticks paradise theater hey Oh my God. I was like, where's this going? I don't even know. Because <laughs> it's a theater. It's just a gotcha. different kind. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that the whole album is a guilty pleasure for me because 
Well, it just reminds me of like listening to Casey Kasem, like top 40 countdown. I just do remember listening to my little AM radio and, you know, Casey and, and him, uh, that, that song for some reason, like th- those songs kind of just remind me of that time. But, um, you know, I don't know. I think sticks, they get a bum rap and I understand why, but <laughs> I mean, they are also, you know, I'm not, I'm not like all about Mr. Roboto and any, I don't like that at all. Like to me, that's not even a guilty pleasure. That's just, it sucks. But (laughs) Mr. Roboto Uh is a stone cold banger. I will have you know. I'm going to disagree. (laughs) That's one of my karaoke (laughs) go-tos. Oh, I think you did tell me that. Sorry, Anthony. He's he's really good at the robot voice. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I just want to say that in the last, and this is totally not on the Paradise Theater topic, but the last few tours that Mm Styx has done, they like unburied Mr. Roboto and like did it as an encore. And that first tour they did it, people lost their fucking (laughs) minds because no one would ever have expected them to do that song again. Right. And they just like dragged that shit out and, and they're like, here we are. And people loved it. All right. <laughs> wow. Awesome. But Paradise Theater is such a weird album because Dennis DeYoung is just at, at his heart so schmaltzy. And I think the longer they went, the schmaltzier he got. And Paradise Theater, there's just some, I mean, it's a great album, but there's just some stuff on there that I just can't take. And then he practically destroys the band with that whole Kilroy was here nonsense. Well, that was, yeah. Right. And so, yeah, he he's kind of a sticking point for me. I, I love some of what he did. I think a lot of what he did was genius, but some of it just, yeah, it's no, just I too, totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. For, for me, that it's just more of like a nostalgia thing. I, I, yeah. I think a lot of these things that we're going to talk or that we're talking about might, might be nostalgia things, right? I mean, obviously, sure. you know, like all that stuff when I was younger, <laughs> um, which also I forgot to mention the Carpenters because I st- – I still love them, but I used to love them so much then too. So yeah. it's another yeah. kind of, I guess, guilty pleasure. Piggybacking off of nostalgia. It's probably well known to, to, to some people, but also not to others because it's still not considered terribly cool. Because um, I know sometimes I'll mention them and Anthony gives me a weird, like, I can't believe you face. But, um, you know, being a child of my particular generation in the 80s, um, I, used, I was lucky we had a juice bar I could go to between, between the years I was 16 and 20. And um, so I got to just digest a ton of music. That's where I first heard Aha. <laughs> I was going to say Aha. <laughs> yeah. You could hear Aha. You could hear like Depeche Mode and everything. But that is where I first heard the Pet Shop Boys, seeing them 47 times later. Really? Yeah. <gasps> Rob, 47 times? Yeah. I think that might be... I don't know anyone that's ever seen any more concerts by one person than that. I think (laughs) it's a little, it's a little nuts. Um, You know, uh, but, but even like, even their films, the Mm -hmm. stuff adjacent, like the the album they made with Liza Minnelli, Mm -hmm. um, the record they made with Francis Barber, um, all that stuff is amazing. Um, Their ballet, their ballet score is incredible, but their, their influence on artists since then has been pretty incredible because there's people now that still cite them as a reference, you know, and, you know, they've, they've done stuff with Suede and the Pretenders and Rufus Wainwright and just Johnny Marr. 
everything. You know, it used to be, you know, for until about 10 years ago, it was the kind of thing. It was like, like mentioning the Bee Gees to some people because it was just like, oh, whatever. But now they've sort of gotten um, cool through the, you know, lens of critics and things. So there is that. Um, the other thing that is also equally probably as frightening and scary is that uh, a couple of years ago, I was just starting to read music biographies of people that I had very little knowledge of just for the sake of reading them. Um, and Gary Giddens is, is this really great writer who writes about jazz, sort of like the American songbook type stuff. And he's written a three volume set of books on uh, Bing Crosby, or two volumes. He's only done the second, but he's going to do the third. And so I started going back and listening to Bing Crosby because I'd heard the stuff that I, that I heard, you know, with my dad. And it's amazing, right? I mean, here's somebody whose career was longer than Elvis, longer than the Beatles, and his ability to adapt with the times and the way that he just sort of made other records with other people. Like he made these records with Julie London and uh, Rosemary, or he's made these records with Rosemary Clooney that are, that are amazing. And he does, of course, the, the, the movies with Bob Hope. But the other thing that's interesting is he revolutionized recording by realizing that he could not find a microphone that suited how he wanted his voice to sound. So he made his own microphone to basically do that. Wow. So a lot of the technologies with um, microphones are his. And he's also one of the people that was the, the founders of Tascam. So if you're a fan of any type of audio tape, whether it's reel to reels or cassettes, he was really ingrained in that. And I had no idea what his impact was on American popular music. And then I started listening to this stuff and I'm like, it's not at all cheesy. I mean, it doesn't have the cheese that like some of the Sinatra stuff has, but it's not like so over the top, like some of the, um, the Rudy Valley records are Marie Chevalier records are. It's, it's really interesting whether you hear them in brother, can you spare a dime, which was the soundtrack for the depression to, you know, all the way through the, the stuff with, Rosemary Clue that we talked about, and then even the appearance with Bowie that he did, you know, he always sort of had this way of reinventing himself in popular culture, which I thought was incredibly interesting. I'm going to just also, just really quickly, because you mentioned AHA, I think Take On Me is, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it is totally a guilty pleasure song, but you also have to think, just remember when that video came out, when that song came out, that video really revolutionized the way a lot of videos were made, you know, after that. So it, it might be, you know, a, a guilty pleasure song, but it also did change a lot of shit for, with MTV and videos. It's interesting too, because they, they're sort of a theme in their early videos. And some of these are ones that you, like most people might not have seen, but that one is basically comic book based, you know, yeah. where they're going in and out of comic book panels and they have another one that's done like a pop-up book. And another one that's done like a connect the dots. Their videos were so creative. They really were innovative. Yep. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to, I mean, anybody who's listened to most any past episode knows I have absolutely no guilt about my love of AHA. <laughs> I love them. From the first album up to the most recent album. I love it all. Mm. Not all equally. Right. I have I have like five mm -hmm. standout albums and the other ones are kind of like filler. But, you know, they're yeah. still good albums. And I would say Manhattan Skyline, oh my Stone Cold classic again. Jesus mm -hmm. Christ, I love that song so much. And I, I am still a big fan of The Sun Always Shines on TV. Yep. As a pop record, more so than, than Take On Me. But they're, they're both for different reasons. 
So I'm going to ask for forgiveness from the metal god himself, Rob Halford, because Uh (laughs) I'm going to admit a love of some very cheesy pop music. And this is where I want to talk about incredibly cheesy, manufactured, Mm. mid to late 90s to early 2000s pop and I'm talking, it kind of begins with the Spice Girls and then it runs right the way through to S Club 7. That entire scene that was very yeah. carefully crafted by the likes of Simon Fuller. Man, you know, yeah. you know that it was all done through talent searches. It right. was all very meticulously put together. But my God, is some of that stuff catchy. <laughs> you know, I worked the Spice Girls, right, Anthony? Did you I know that? I think I remember you saying that before. Yeah. yeah. And do you know that I don't think anybody knows on this podcast that when that went, and I will just say right now that yes, it want to be is one of my guilty pleasure songs, but, um, I, that when that came out and I saw that video and I saw what I was going to have to work to, to video shows and tell them that this is what we're putting out and sending them. <laughs> that was literally the second I said, I have to get out of this business. This is the time for me to leave. It's terrible to say, but it's that. It wasn't the right said Fred record. It was the Spice Girl. It wasn't, although that was, it gave me pause, but (laughs) nobody was Spice Girls. So sorry, Anthony, to interrupt you, but. No, no, that's fascinating. Did you ever get to actually meet them? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I have some some great pictures. (laughs) Were they as much of a handful as they came across as, or were they actually pretty sweet? Yeah. And lovely no, they were the like they were. They were actually they were nice, all sweet, nice, wonderful uh, girls. But they all were wild. I mean, maybe <laughs> Melanie C was a little more down to earth, I guess. Um, and I always thought she was the coolest one of them. Anyway, I liked her. Yeah. Um, uh, they were all nice. They were all nice, but they were just a little wild they were young girls and they were so famous all of a sudden who could right. blame them jesus sure and you know yeah. i think publicly they were presented as having very very strong personalities which is candidly i think seeing the spice girls when i was like 10 years old is probably why i'm attracted to women with very strong personalities <laughs> <laughs> like impressed on me at such yeah. a, a nice. age <laughs> yeah but you know oh. the simon fuller machine just kept going yeah. after the spice girls said eh, we're gonna go it alone and then he came back with s club seven who had nowhere near the same popularity but the formula was kind of the same we're gonna do tv we're gonna do films and we're gonna put out a couple of albums that kind of cheesy pop music that's going to appeal to as many people as possible and mm-hmm. i kind mm-hmm. of dug those too um yeah. this metal loving guy is kind of ashamed to say that but no, you've got your pop sensibility side. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah. And it, it, you could very easily draw a line, you know, from bands like the Crystals and the Shirelles to the Spice Girls with no problem. Oh, sure. It's yeah. it's pretty much a, a, a straight line from that mm-hmm. stuff to, but yeah. But I don't think that anything that any of those groups in the 60s did is as cheesy as stuff at the time in the 60s it was thought of being cheesy but nowhere near it wasn't as magnified as the stuff is now um maybe and the spice girls were so uh they had the spice girls had the ability to go over the top without reservations right they could just go yeah completely bonzo nutsoid and it was it was fine yeah you know they were totally in in the cultural zeitgeist of uh where they needed to be and they Mm -hmm. knew they knew 
when when someone interviewed them, they knew how far they could push a button and 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 how far they could go. When they did, um, you know, TV appearances, they sort of were, it was very carefully orchestrated and thought about what they were doing. It was pure genius in how they were like marketed and recorded and produced and put out. Everything about that is yeah uh, incredibly fascinating. And they also crested that wave of the whole Cool Britannia movement at mm-hmm. the time, which, you know, Jerry yeah. showing up at the Brit Awards in that Union Jack dress. Yeah. I mean, this was the era where, you know, Noel Gallagher was hitting the stage with a Union Jack guitar. Tony Blair, as soon as he got elected, um, not elected, but as soon as he, he formed a Labour government and moved into Number 10 Downing Street, he was inviting all of these pop culture figures to meetings and to hang out at Downing Street. And suddenly it was like this big cultural movement that crossed musical boundaries and they were kind of cresting that wave as well. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. We're going to pause here to take a very quick break to advertise one of our fellow network podcasts. And we'll be right back in 30 seconds with more of our discussions. See you in a second. At the 42 cast, we want to bring you everything. And that's why we've jam packed the next few months with as much as we can. You not only get the same reviews, topics, and interviews that you did before, you also get screen reads where we compare a movie to its source material, or role models where we talk about tabletop gaming. It's never been a more exciting time to check out our show. It's your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything, so why not check it out? We can be found on most podcasting platforms, and we are a proud member of the ESO Network. And we're back. All right. Who's got another thing they want to throw out to us? Stephanie, you look so guilty right now. I'm so guilty. (laughs) I have two super huge mega stars that I'm just totally going to be confessing that I love. Well, just these songs. I don't love them, but I respect them, I guess. Uh, One is Whitney Houston and I will always love you. I, first of all, the song written by Dolly, right? So Mm, yeah. you know, I, I love Dolly Parton's um, version, and um, but I also love Whitney Houston's version, and I don't care what anyone says. I know that <laughs> note that's held will kill people, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, try to sing like that because nobody can. And yeah, that's the truth. Yeah, so I like that song, and um, I also, you know, again, someone I had to work with that wasn't. A pleasure to work with but the guilty pleasure song that obviously came out way before i was working with her is mariah carey's vision of love and i believe i mentioned this on another one of our podcasts but that's yeah. really such a great song and i remember you talking about that before so i have a guilty pleasure with that right for sure so those are two mega huge stars that again i don't love them particularly but those songs and their voices you can't really deny mm-hmm. anthony you talked about the spice girls um but I'm going to kick it like 15 years earlier, and Steph will be the only person that probably gets this with me. But at the time, you know, if you were like a young teenager and it was impressionable in the 80s, and you saw Fuzzbox or We've Got a Fuzzbox and we're yeah. going to use it, it was, it was pretty terrible music. But you were like, this is actually pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. So I will, I, will, I will go with that. Okay. Kind of piggybacking off of some of your discussions with the Osmonds and such things. I am, uh, and I I know we've kind of talked about this in the context of the Beach Boys, and I know he also did some stuff for the Monkey, so it's a nice little segue. But um, 
I also saw Glenn Campbell a bunch of times. And oh, yeah. every single time, it was amazing. It was, you know, really heartbreaking on the last tour when, you know, everyone knew about his affliction and he had, mm. you know, handlers and he was looking at a prompter and sometimes he was missing stuff. But he was still, that didn't detract from the songwriting. It didn't detract from the playing. And um, some of the stuff he did in the 70s that was kind of like an attempt to be like country pop is still great. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still amazing. But even stuff like, um, you know, by the time I get to Phoenix, it's just like amazing. And then you get to Rhinestone Cowboy, which is kind of passively dismissed as this like really cheeky record. It's all really interesting stuff. And his his guitar playing on his and every other record that he's on, because he's on a lot of great records for other people. And his his lyrics are just really, really good. He's just a really solid all-around performer he could write songs he could perform but he also had a really good sense of timing um so he's in there for me as well cool he's a spectacular musician yeah as a guitar player banjo player whatever he is top notch yeah all right so i guess i have to go now you have to go i've been putting it off i've been this is this is just shameful and it's all my partner's fault (laughs) that I have developed a an appreciation, we'll say, for Taylor Swift. Oh, oh hey, I'm, I'm with you. I'm in the oh same boat. Oh, my God. She, I, don't, I don't like everything that she's done. And, you know, the some of her recent albums I have not gotten into, but some of her earlier stuff, I've every once in a while I come across a song that I just absolutely cannot deny how much I love it. And the turning point for me was Shake It Off. That yeah. fucking song is so infectious and so poppy and so, got such a great beat mm-hmm. that I was like, shit, I guess I just got to jump on the fucking <laughs> Swift train. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of went back and found other things that I really liked um, from her Red album. My favorite Taylor Swift song is State of Grace. Love it. It's so good. Um, and there's a, there's quite a few others. Wildest Dreams is really good. You know, as as pop songs go, it's it's a great song. Um, I, some of her stuff just does not appeal to me. But as a person, as a businesswoman, um, as a songwriter, as a producer, as someone who has shaped her own career, yep. I have... An enormous amount of respect for her. Yeah, I, so I that's agree. that's going to be. I mean, yeah, Rob Halford, forgive me. <laughs> I was going to say, Alan. I think with the uh, the whole thing about anyone trying to get tickets for her in the last week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> given how many people seem to love T Swizzle, <laughs> is, is she it. that much of a guilty pleasure? Well, for me, she is, and that's and fair. right and. I, I will be seeing her on this tour. How did you get tickets? My partner. Were they $28,000? No, because no, so the... I ain't going to know. I mean, it's 120 and that's more mm. than I would normally pay for yeah. anybody. Like I went to see, uh, I don't remember which tour it was, but it was one of the, and this was 15 years ago, maybe this was Madonna. And it was on one of the enormous productions yep. that she did. And the seats where we were, were 400 bucks Ugh. and ain't no way I'm paying that much money for somebody that I want to see. 
but I have a friend who worked at Coca-Cola and they were sponsors and she got me tickets. Okay. So she, so she yeah. took me for free basically. And I'm like, well, fuck yeah. I'll see Madonna for free. Yeah. You know, I, I think the only way I'm spending over 120 is if it's what I would describe as a bucket list band. I mean, even then though, I, I don't know, yeah. man, that's just, we might have to do a whole fucking it's show. Ticketmaster because yeah, I think should. I paid 150 for my porcupine tree ticket. Okay. But that's a, that, I think that's a, I, I, I think I might've done that. Too. I think our, we got lucky with getting with, with the Taylor Swift because that wasn't too bad, but the Springsteen tickets were bad. Oh my God. Uh, Springsteen on Broadway was not great. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're in that kind of stratosphere when you're McCartney. No, the McCartney tickets were the heart. Yeah, that was the one. I'm just at the point now where I, I'm, you know, I mean, these tickets were bought by someone else. So I will go, you know, I'll, I'll pay my way and I'll go along with the group that's going with the six tickets that my friend bought. But I'm just at the point now where I'm just basically, I have no interest in seeing any band that has tickets sold through Ticketmaster. Yeah, it's just, yeah. they just fucking infuriate me. Yep. And they have for decades, but they have become a horrible evil yep. empire well, eddie vetter warned us 20 years ago yeah. oh i know and so, everyone knows it now so that i, I realized we're right. going off topic from that's <laughs> okay. guilty that's pleasures okay. but I, I mean i wouldn't be surprised if some changes come because they are getting some really bad press yeah. right now yeah i yeah. just signed a few petitions today about that so. very nice very yeah. nice but you know alan you did mention madonna and um mm. she is on my list for i mean there are a few there are a few songs that i really um, like by her, but I think my biggest guilty pleasure is just the first one. Everybody, yeah, everybody, mm -hmm. get up and sing. so I, I, you know, I'm not the biggest Madonna fan, but I guess like you said about Taylor Swift, I respect the fact of what she, you know, how she set set her mind to doing what she wanted to do, and she did yeah. it, you know, and she yeah. still does it to this day. But um, yeah. uh, you know, so that I, I guess I'll name a few '80s um, guilty pleasures. Um, Wham, wake me up before you go. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> it's guilty, guilty, guilty. <laughs> but I love it. I'm sorry. Also, okay. um, Rick Springfield, he's a guilty pleasure of mine. I especially um I've done everything for you. Come on now. Which, so which was which was written by Sammy Hagar. Oh, really? Yep. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that. Yep, you can All feel right. less guilty about it now, Steph. Well, <laughs> no, I think for me, I'll feel more guilty about it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and um, and I guess <clears throat> this is just on the cusp of being '80s, but I've mentioned her before, before too. Paula Abdul's "Promise of a New Day." It's the only song by her that I can really stomach, but uh, I really love that song. I think it's great. So. Steph, mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on Madonna. Mm -hmm. Since you mentioned her, in the I think a lot of her '80s material is not really a guilty pleasure. Her '80s mm -hmm. material was pretty good for the most part. Mm -hmm. That said, the one I will admit as a guilty pleasure, because it was by the time that Madonna had completely jumped the shark and was trying way too hard to stay relevant and stay cool, and I I forget the name of the song, but that song she did with Nicki Minaj and MIA that was part of her Super Bowl show. Oh, oh God. No. <laughs> Oh, I no. can't help but anytime I hear that, I just go, I hate yeah. this, but it's so damn catchy. It's <laughs> yeah. in my head today. Because all I'm suddenly thinking is, you the, know, that little cheerleader 
chant yeah. that goes on in the background. I'm like, right. Fuck. Yeah, for for me, it's the the one where she sampled Ava. Um, oh, that one was good. That oh, one yeah, was great. I that. That's mm-hmm. the first one I remembered liking for a long time. I, I love her 80s stuff a lot. And I was I pretty much had a relationship with someone that pretty much was playing Madonna every day um, <laughs> of when we were together. But I I am quite fond of Into the Groove because it's to me it almost sounds like a Blondie record, um, which sounds oh, weird. I hear that. And the Sonic Youth version of it is incredible. So that's my Madonna guilty pleasure. I also like Deeper and Deeper too, which I think was yeah, greatly yeah. overlooked as a single. Um, I'm I'm I think I'm much more partial to her '90s singles than her '80s. Mm-hmm. I think like that she express herself and um, yeah, like Rescue Me and Vogue mm-hmm. and Deeper and Deeper and you know I just love all that stuff. Take a Bow was really good. All that '90s shit, I really dug it. I mean, Frozen. all the way up to Ray of Light, yeah. God, Ray of Light is one of my favorite albums ever made. Wow. All right, fine. Guilty pleasure. There we Guilty go. Guilty pleasure. But when so, I, I mean, I was I was never really a big Madonna fan. So in when she first came out, I completely dismissed her, you know, like flash in the pan, you know, talentless hack, whatever, until and I don't know what it was, but um, Dress You Up came out and the video that they released was a, a concert video. It was like the opening song on their tour. And I thought, I really, really like this. So then I started paying a bit more attention. Um, so I was kind of like you know, aware of Madonna for the whole time, you know, and I like some of the stuff, but Ray of Light came out and I literally laid on the floor in my bedroom and listened to it over and over and over for hours. Wow. I, I was, I was obsessed with that record. Holy cow. And I can't believe that Dress You Up was the one that kind of hooked you. That's so funny. <laughs> and it was more the 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 live the concert yeah. video, the live video that um than the record. I don't think I ever even heard the record on the radio at that time. I just saw it on MTV and I thought, wow, this is really good. This is uh, like, you know, catchy and it's a good song and she's singing it live. Well, you know, blah blah blah. So I don't know. It just it just grabbed me. Huh. Weird. Hmm. Weird. I got another one that um I think it it pretty much didn't really do nearly as well as the previous albums um, that they had put out, and um, I don't. But I still like it, and it's Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. Oh my god, I love Tusk so. Yeah, much. Um, and I particularly love the song, like the song Tusk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't really know why. I, I mean. I guess I can understand why people, you know, they, you know, everyone gets com- their l- comparisons to their last album or albums, and yeah, yeah. So maybe it wasn't as strong, but I mean, I still think it's very strong album if it's just standing mm-hmm. alone by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, that's it's not. I don't even know if that's a guilty pleasure. I guess so. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, not for me, definitely. That was where I mean, the first two albums with Lindsay and Stevie were incredibly well crafted pop records. It was yeah. Tusk, where Lindsay really let you know what's going on in his head, like his weird creative side and his weird. I'm going to be the producer now, and these songs are going to sound nothing at all like the last two records. Right. And I think it's fucking brilliant. I love it. Yep. Yeah. So keeping on strong female stuff, I'm going to throw a couple things out there, mainly because it's just it's so unknown here in America. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of Asha Bosley. Uh, she's been making records since 1951 in Hindi and Bengali and 
and uh, she has done tons of stuff. A lot of her stuff on that's been on soundtracks has won tons of prizes. She was on a Kronos Quartet album that won a Grammy. You've stolen my heart. That's it. But she's got an amazing voice. Um, she's known very similar to, to Madonna for her style and her ability to sort of go through multi-generations uh, in performing. Like Janam Samja Karo, which I'm probably butchering, was her 97 album. That was the one that kind of really got her noticed over here a lot. But I discovered her just because I was in the state sale and I bought just a whole handful of somebody's 45s and they were all like Indian pop music 45s <laughs> and some Bollywood records. And I'm like, who is this woman? She's amazing. Wow. And she's amazing. <laughs> so yeah. if you've never heard of Asha Bosley, she's frigging, I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how otherworldly and incredible she is. Um, so yeah. Um, Rob, as the boys in corner shop said, she's the one that kept the dream alive. Yeah, I was gonna get. Yeah, I was gonna mention that. You know, a lot of people will know her, know her as being name checked in the corner shop song "Brimful of Asha." Um, Literally about yeah. her. Yeah, on the forty-five. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and then I also am sort of a fan of um, particularly mo- movements of music, right? Like my, when I was growing up, I you know riding around with my dad, he always listened to the big band song radio station and whatever songs they had on so a lot of that like really sort of now kind of canned swing big band music stuff mm-hmm. i love all that right all that like glenn miller buzzy you know dizzy gillespie all that stuff i love all that but mm-hmm. i also am a huge fan of like french pop of the 60s uh particularly france gall and um jane burke and, and you know that, that type of stuff francois hardy all that stuff is just amazing but france gall sort of has gone through a renaissance because Jack White re-released two of her records a couple of years ago, but she's, she's incredible too. And if you've never um, ever listened to Francois Hardy, I know a lot of people saw the Carrie Mulligan movie and that's kind of how they've heard for, first heard of Francois Hardy, but Francois Hardy's incredible too, who is probably to the French of the sixties, what Madonna was to America, the seven of the eighties. I got to be honest, Rob, this, You've, you've named some Stone Cold classics, but I'm not hearing many things that I would call a guilty pleasure that. That all actually sounds really good and stuff to actually well, be I mean, proud of. I, the thing is, like, the, thi- the, the see, the thing is, this is all stuff now that I could say I like, and people are like, oh, this is cool. But 10 years ago, you know, I'm telling yeah. people I like this India. I mean, when Brimful of Asha came out, I was excited. Everybody's like, you know, so a lot of it is time has caught up. With a lot of mm-hmm. the stuff, you know, yeah, that's which, most likely the same with thing. Yeah. yeah, the BGs. I will, yeah, I will, I will, I will change your mind though, and 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 talk to you about um, anytime I see like a YouTube video or something with Liberace, it just makes me giggle. Um, it started a couple about 50, about twenty years ago. I was a um, a friend of mine's house, and we stumbled across the Liberace Thanksgiving special, and I, I swear we laughed so hard it almost kickstarted my asthma. And then I started sort of listening to the records because I also am a fan of classical music. Right. And the thing is, beneath all that showmanship and kitsch, his ability to play classics like Beethoven and and Chopin and understand the classical repertoire Mm -hmm. is really Mm -hmm. incredible. And Mm -hmm. his ability to connect with an audience in a way. I mean, when Elvis wanted to learn how do I connect with an audience? How do I make an audience? He went to Vegas and hung out with Liberace. Right. Mm. Um, 
So it is, it, it is kind of not really cool necessarily now because it's like, you know, yeah, he's like the, he's like the Wayne Newton of classical yeah. piano. And when I was in Vegas, the one, one of the two times I was in Vegas, um, I went, the Liberace museum was still open. Oh yeah. I went to that. I, and all the women that worked there just thought he was flamboyant. <laughs> I literally, I think, I think I was there like seven hours and it was like the most bizarrely weird, but also incredibly amazing thing uh, ever that someone would just like love themselves that much to have all this stuff. And I will piggyback that by mentioning too that um, Tiny Tim is also incredibly weird and awesome at the same time. Like you listen to those Tiny Tim records, like Tiptoe Through the Tulips and stuff. You're like, this guy can't sing and, they, and the stuff's out of tune. Why is this catchy? And then he did this record, Stephanie, I know you might remember this record in the 90s with other famous people. I know what you're talking about. Totally, I do remember I that. Remember. And it was yeah. like, what the hell is this, right? Yeah. So, but I, I, I was completely mystified by his voice for years. And now I just, I'm kind of, I, I, I kind of really, I've come to appreciate it just for this unabashed love of just performing and doing what he wants to do as well. Yeah. So one more thing I mentioned at the beginning, artists that you know you shouldn't like because they've turned out to be terrible fucking people. Yeah. And oh. I mentioned that I have one album that I can't quite let go of because it's a really good album and it broke just before everyone found out how terrible this artist was. And that is Marilyn Manson's yep. We Are Chaos. I knew that was the one you were going to say. Which I I'm not a huge fan of his back catalogue. He's had some catchy songs, but then he put out We Are Chaos that was done as basically co-written with Shooter Jennings and it's very glam rock you hear a lot of Bowie in there and it's a really good album and then within I don't know three months of it coming out all of the allegations started hitting mm. the press and Marilyn Manson was cancelled and yeah. I'm at risk of getting cancelled myself for saying this but <laughs> I put it on a few days ago and was like I still really like this yeah. and I feel bad for really liking it. Yeah. Like that, that to me is the definition of a guilty pleasure where for whatever reason, right. you mm -hmm. feel bad and even slightly dirty that you're listening to something and enjoying it. Well, yeah. I, and when there's yeah. definitely criminal overtones to it, guilt is definitely the, mm -hmm. the thing to I go mean, with. I feel that way whenever I listen to uh, anything by Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis now, mm -hmm. but also when I ever, I listen to any of the Phil Spector records, I feel yeah. a little dirty as well. So I'm completely with you. Although Marilyn Manson has kind of got his own contemporary context that I think is much more easy for people to grapple with. So if anybody wants to hear more on that topic, we did a show way back when on separating the art from the artist we had a really good discussion on that show and i think it's we worth, did. worth revisiting so if you haven't heard it before please go listen to that all right so that wraps it up for us this week next week we have a special show for you because next week is our one year anniversary what? What? oh my god i can't believe we've been doing this for a whole year so, it doesn't feel like a year i know Although sometimes it feels like, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, so uh, Stephanie, where can folks find you on the internet? You can find me at, well, anywhere you can. Okay, let me do that again. You can find me on Bandcamp at Stephanie Seymour, you know, just search my name. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. 
You can find me on Instagram at there underscore are underscore birds and my website, which is therearebirds.com. And of course, all the streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff. Nice. Anthony, what's going on with Watchers? You can find me on the Watchers and the Fourth Dimension podcast, watching our way through the entirety of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We are currently wrapping up season 12 uh, from 1975, the first Tom Baker season. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, wherever you like to get your podcasts, including wherever you're listening to this one. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and unfortunately Twitter at at Watchers4D. And if you want to follow me personally on Instagram, I'm at at Englishman in ATL. All right, Rob. You can find me bringing the beat to the street Wednesdays uh, from 7 to 9 Central on KDHX. Uh, I do a show called Juxtaposition, and uh, all shows are archived for two weeks. So if you want to listen later than on a Wednesday, you can go online and listen to them on the archive stream. Rock on. Yeah. All right, so go to my website, cosmicpress.com, K-O-Z-M-I-C press.com. That sounds like a Mickey Mouse song. And uh, I have my list of podcasts there. And then you can check out all the books I've written and stuff. So go do that. That would make me super happy. All right. So we'll be back next week. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Keep rocking on. And we'll see you soon. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.